evidence and answers. A growing number of Christians now believe that homosexuality is no longer a sin. Many biblical passages are reinterpreted to justify the gay lifestyle. What is the truth on homosexuality and gay marriage? At our recent Evidence and Answers conference, Dr. Corey Miller presented the truth on homosexuality and gay marriage. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucharem. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today in our broadcast, Dr. Corey Miller presents the dangers of the gay lifestyle and leads you to the truth that can set you free to live as God intended. Now with part one of this three-part message is Dr. Miller. Just a fair warning, some of the stuff you're going to hear this morning is not rated G, but I'm going to make it palatable in such a way that you're going to be thinking like you might be in a health class too. I'm going to be talking about some of the biomedical arguments from harm on, in certain respects. This is a topic, not the first part on marriage, but when we start getting into sexuality or sexualities, it's walking on eggshells, one of the most volatile topics in America right now. Families are being separated, people's lives are being destroyed by this, and it's one of those areas we call rhetorical apologetics. How we say something, how we address something is equally as important as the content, right? Many years ago when I was teaching at Indiana University, I'd been teaching the same class using the same atheist textbook, standard ethics 101 book, and this year, I got to the point on sexuality that I have every year, and I gave a very similar argument. But now I had a former pastor who had turned gay, and he literally jumped up out of a seat, called me a homophobe in front of the whole class, and then turned me into the head of the university and charged me with creating a suicidal environment. He took the victim status and, and milked it for all it was worth and said that, He's in fear for his life when he leaves class at night, wonders if he's going to get jumped and hazed or something like that. University would not even listen to my side of the story. And finally, two of my atheist students took my defense. I felt like I was in with the Apostle Paul, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Brethren, I'm on trial for the resurrection. And I had these two atheist students taking my defense, and they had recorded my lectures. And they told the university two different times, if you do not even listen to his lecture, we don't agree with Dr. Miller's view on God or on sexuality, but he did nothing wrong. And if you guys fire him over this, we will leave this university and go elsewhere because this is not free thinking. That, in addition to four letters across the bow with Alliance Defending Freedom, I got exonerated. But just before that happened, I remember the student came up to me and, and, and we were talking that night and I said, I don't understand why you're trying to get me fired here. I, I thought we discussed these things in the class, before class, after class, through emails and so forth. I said, what about tolerance? He looked at me with this big smile and he said, I don't believe in being tolerant to the intolerant. Good luck with your dissertation defense in Aberdeen. He knew where I was gonna be defending my dissertation. Now I was in fear because in Aberdeen I had researched the man who is the external person on the committee that I'd be defending in front of. And this man attended church, an Episcopal church in Scotland. Great. Maybe the one of three people attending church there. That's awesome. Turns out when I looked up the church, church didn't even believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And I thought, oh no. 
researched further and he was one of the leading members in the LGBT community in the Church of Scotland two weeks before I got there gay marriage had passed and then when I got there and defended and had to do some reworking uh, there's a whole story behind it but I found that this person had just transitioned from a man to a woman and he wrote JK Rowling of Harry Potter last year in The Guardian thanking her for her work because it was her work that helped him transition even as he had read all of her works to his four children growing up it was her works that helped him become the first transgender uk philosopher this is an issue we all face you can't get around this anymore you can't stay in the closet about it you will be called out about it there is truth and there is political truth there is justice and there is social justice this is becoming a litmus test it's a career stopper in some cases. And so we want to talk about this in a way that you can engage people in the world, not being of the world, right? When the Apostle Paul uh, addressed people of the scriptures, he went into the synagogues and reasoned with them from the scriptures. He sought to persuade them that Jesus is the Christ, right? When Peter in chapter 2 addressed an audience, he had the assumptions that you believe in Adam and Eve, right? You believe in Abraham and Moses. You believe in the coming Messiah. Well, Jesus is that Messiah, now repent. And 3,000 people is not even a long blog post came to Christ. But times have changed. We are not in the synagogue anymore in this nation. We have not been there for a generation. And this is one of the reasons, I think, why we lost the millennials. Because we were always trying an Acts chapter 2 approach. Paul says, you become all things to all people, that by all means you might save some. To the Jew, I become a Jew. To the Greek, I become a Greek. Paul at Mars Hill was biblically informed, but he had the Bible right here, and he had this right here when he was meeting with the Greeks. See, just as the father of modern science, Francis Bacon, once said, there are the two books of God, God's Word and God's work, Scripture and nature, and neither the twain shall contradict. If there's any alleged contradiction whatsoever between general and special revelation, it's not at the level of the facts themselves, scripture and nature. It's at the level of the interpretation of the facts, science and theology, both of which are interpretations, models, abstractions. So I'm going to be kind of short on scripture today, even though I'm here in the choir, but I'm wanting to equip you for Acts 17. Reclaiming marriage, marriage, L-G-B-T-Q-Q-I-A-A-M-A-P. As one of my gay clerics one time said when I asked him about this, he laughed and he said, I, I know we're always trying to add one more. And I, and I said, well, what about MAP? And he said, MAP, what's that? And I said, well, you know, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual eradicated pedophile because it's now a hate word and it's minor attracted person. And he goes, I know, I know, I see where the logic is going with this, but there's just something viscerally in me in my gut that says that's just wrong but love is love hmm? how can there be any wrong with love you have scripture on the one hand you have this idea of marriage you have this ideal of marriage and then you have stranger things queer things abnormal things odd things marriage is a covenantal union ordained by god of one adult biologically born male and one adult biologically born female for the purposes of natural sexual reproduction, faithful intimate union, and it forms the most basic societal institution and protection for human good. Comes right off of our doctrinal statement on our webpage. 
As soon as I got to Purdue in philosophy, I met with a bunch of other philosophers who were also married, and I led them through this book study on sacred marriage. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Uh, I studied Greek philosophy as well as part of my dissertation. Socrates was alleged to have said, right at the first page of this book, by the way, by all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll be happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. <laughs> and all of us were philosophers, and our wives all wanted to beat us up. Truthfully, I don't think Socrates really said that, but it is funny. Unsurprisingly, 40% of all engagements happen between Thanksgiving and Valentine's Day. So if you did not get engaged recently, yeah, sucks to be you. Next year, most happen during that time. Today, the median marital age is 29 for women, 30 for men. I did one of those things where you don't try this at home, kids. I was 21. She was 19. We were together for one week. I flew out of state, back to college, came back for Valentine's Day, asked her parents. They said yes, and then I asked her to marry me that night. Flew out again for three months, came back a week before the wedding. Don't try this at home, kids. But that was nearly three decades ago, and we're still married, and many of our friends have since divorced. We're told wait until about age 30 to curb divorce, usually for career issues or fear issues, right? Chris Rock once said, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? And those are the only two options. The cultural response is really a happy medium. Shack, cohabit, get your benefits without the cost. And besides, who do you ever buy a car from when you don't test drive it first? So you got to test drive it first. And if it works out, maybe you'll get married or maybe you won't. What's the purpose? What is the purpose? Today, 50 plus percent of cohabitating couples shack before getting marriage. 50 plus percent. In 1960, that was virtually unheard of. And surprised? Today, the divorce rate is twice that of 1960. Doesn't really seem to have that magical curbing of divorce, does it? In 1960, 72% of American adults were married. But today, that's less than 50%. Marriage has fallen on hard times because other things are amidst. In 1970, nearly 90% of births were in marriage, but today, less than 60%. In some communities, it's 70 plus percent. Divorce rates, granted, they're high. It's complicated when you're reading through the statistics. As Mark Twain once said, you know, there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. Sometimes you have to ask, what were the nature of the questions being asked and the audience members and so forth? But they are high, and yet the highest are those among, one, those who marry before age 18 and or have dropped out of high school and or those who have a baby out of wedlock, and then guess what happens? The cycle repeats itself, and those who are likely in those cases have children that do the same and it continues on in that negative downward spiral. Research shows that those who marry young without also cohabitating actually have the lowest divorce rates. Last week in the Wall Street Journal, those statistics came out interviewing 50,000 women. And data came from, strange, sounds strange, from the CDC website, but looking at the health of uh, American families. 50,000, those who marry young, relatively young, not too young, without also cohabitating, have some of the lowest divorce rates. Children who grow up in married two-parent families have two or three times more positive life outcomes than those who do not.
Finally, marriage is not about me. It's about we. That, if there's one thing you find out in marriage is how selfish you are. There is no context in which you are shown to be so self-centered as that. What will you do with that knowledge? But it's not just about we, my spouse and I. It's about three. It's holy matrimony. This infuses purpose and motivation into the marriage. I told you, I got married very early. I didn't really know my wife. She didn't know what kind of a hunk she really had. In the first month, we had taught divorce. I remember sitting in a car with her thinking, okay, what are we going to do? I hate you. You hate me. How are we going to work this out? We didn't know each other at all. And so I said, don't try this at home, kids. I like the courting idea, but get to know someone at least. Our conviction, till death do you part, and what does it mean to love someone unconditionally? and to look in the mirror at myself first before I look at you and talk about problems has given us three successful decades and three kids who will never have a single person home. Marriage can be hard, but what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Tomorrow morning, I'm meeting with a seminary uh, old best friend of mine that I haven't seen in 20 years. He just happened to, his ship just docked. He's a Navy chaplain. We also, you know, went through, went through this book together, and we were accountability partners. We often talked about, you know, our young marriages and how marriage is the perfect context to grow in holiness. We were accountability partners. We, we tried to hold each other to account as men, as husbands, as better men, as better husbands, and to challenge each other to look at marriage as a context for spiritual growth. As prior military myself, I remember getting dropped all the time in boot camp. You know, you do your push-ups, and then you'd say, Drill Sergeant, thank you for conditioning my mind and my body. Drill Sergeant, please feel free to do so at any time. Drill Sergeant, Private Miller requests permission to recover. He'd either say, denied 10 more, 100 more, or okay, stand up and get out of here. I feel like in marriage, it's the same kind of thing sometimes. Drill Sergeant, what in the world did you get me into? You know, and then thank you for conditioning my mind and my body. Please feel free to do so at any time. If I can look at the obstacles in marriage as opportunities for growth, I say, thank you, drill sergeant. This is awesome. I've seen myself blemished and selfish once again. What if both spouses saw their obligation before God in this way? Till death do us part. We're not just roommates. We can't just say, see you, see you later, sayonara. I'll find another roommate. No, I'm committed to you. How are we going to make this work? How are we going to have a happy marriage? How is it that happiness in the classic world, even from Aristotle onward, was consonant with holiness so that the truly happy life and objective state is consonant with the holy life so that we can forever search for happiness outside of God and never ultimately find it? What if we were designed for this? As Augustine said, thou hast created us for thyself, O God, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. What if we're looking for love in all the wrong places, as the country music song goes? What if love is defined by God and love is not just love? It's more meaningful than that. What if we both saw this as a, as a commitment forever for this life? Marriage as a spiritual growth lab context. Married couples, on average, have far more wealth at the end of their lives than otherwise, enabling the passing on of wealth to the next generation. Good for society.
Marriage and growing up with stable marriage boosts our well-being, the good life for individuals and for society. Marriage between a man and a woman is good for couples, good for kids, and good for civilization. I do not take lightly how difficult marriage is, and it often takes two people to tango. If only one is trying, it becomes really, really super difficult, and I, I feel terrible in those situations for, for outcomes because you both really need to try. Moving on, truth and political truth. Know the difference. They are not the same any more than justice and social justice are, or science and political science. There's truth, there's political truth. Well, what is truth? Truth is objective, it's real. If something is true, it's true for all people at all places and all times. Examples would be mathematical and logical truth. Two plus two equals four. Laws of logic apply to all reality. To deny that is to assume the laws of logic in your assertion. You literally can't escape it. Scientific truth, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. Water is essentially H2O. Religious truth, if God is creator, then God was not created. Ethical truth, clubbing homosexuals with a bat over the head just for fun is evil. Uh, last night, how I set many of you up and I said, do you want to be racist or anti-racist? As if those were the only two alternatives. I'd ask my ethics class, homosexuality, hate or celebrate? Which will you choose, right? No one wants to be a hater. And I would disabuse my students from being relativists on day one by asking them, how many of you think it is morally okay to grab the biggest club you can find and bat a homosexual over the head? Anyone? Anyone? Somebody? Bueller? No one? So what you're saying here is that it's wrong. It's not just like a personal preference, like flavors of ice cream. It's, it's absolutely wrong, right? It means there are moral absolutes, right? And all you need to have moral absolutes, a moral law in a set of moral absolutes is just one. If only that one were the only one, we would have a moral law which implies a moral law maker. People don't like that conclusion, so they opt for relativism and bite the bullet, but then they have no problem. They can have no problem with clubbing a homosexual over the head just for fun. So I try to use not the old passe things like the Hitler card, because that's old hat. People yawn at that. I use things that have modern cash value, like that illustration, to disabuse people of their moral relativism. And once you've got them on the hook of moral absolutism, a moral law, it's a short distance from there to the moral law maker. Truth is knowable. How do I know this? Take someone who says that it's not. Truth does not exist. Is that true? There are no truths. Is that true? If it's true, then it's false. And if it's false, then it's true. In logic, it's called a reductio ad absurdum. It reduces the statement, there are no truths, to absurdity. It's not just accidentally false, it's necessarily false. It cannot not be. There must be truth. And we can see this in the world. We discover things out there, and we're able to make inferences and added, added parts to our knowledge to develop rocket ships to go to the moon, technology. Is it absolute? Can I know the absolute absolutely? Well, not always, not exactly, not ever. Adequately, yes. Suppose, you know, Biden and Putin were emailing back and forth or somehow communicating and, and Putin sent a message about Ukraine. Do you think Biden's interpreters would interpret it and say, Putin wants to have pizza tomorrow when Putin actually said I'm launching the first nuclear bomb? 
Now, there might be nuanced differences in the translation of language, but I guarantee you none of the translators are going to come out and say, gosh, he, he wants to have lunch tomorrow. I may not be able to know the absolute absolutely. I can know it adequately. So this idea of relativism is just shot through. Likewise, truth is exclusive to error by its very nature. That's what truth is. If two plus two equals four, it's not five or three or any potentially infinite other number. Oh, you mathematical bigot, you hater. No, this is just truth. Welcome to the nature of truth. Truth is defined as that which corresponds to reality, that which maps on with the way the world is, that which squares with reality, not as some postmodern philosophers define it, that which my peers will let me get away with. How about tolerance? In the pre-modern and the modern world of the Enlightenment, there was one view of tolerance and truth. Truth was objective and people are equally valued. Remember this statement for rhetorical apologetics. Biology is not bigotry. It's just science and we ought to listen to the science, right? Keep that one in mind as we go on. The postmodernist says truth is my truth. You do you, I'll do me. And it's lived experience. You have nothing to say in reproductive justice if you're a male. You don't have the lived experience of walking with the baby. You have nothing to say if you are on the oppressor spectrum next to me with the lived experience. There's white privilege, there's even brown privilege, which is different from white privilege and not as good as being black. And there's different shades of blackness as well. But lived experience is how we know truth. Of course, knowledge is a social construction of reality, the postmodernist says, but somehow a select few can know the truth if they have the lived experience. For the pre-modernist and the modernist, we used to say love the sinner and hate the sin, right? Disagreement is not denigration. Disagreement is not denigration. Just because we disagree doesn't mean I hate you. It's not hate or celebrate. There's another option. For the postmodernist, the sinner and the sin is inseparable. Either you hate or celebrate. I am my ideas. I am my behavior. And if you don't agree with me, you hate me, and you're probably going to haze me after class. For the pre-modernist and the modernist, they believed that we must be elitists with respect to ideas. Not all ideas are good or helpful. Some are downright dangerous and harmful. Take Nazism. But we should be equalists, egalitarian with respect to people. Treat them all the same because all are sacred. I disagree with what you say, said the deist Voltaire, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. This is where the idea of free speech, of cognitive liberty comes in. But today, even cognitive liberty is called into question. If you violate a political truth, don't believe in tolerating the intolerant. Said Stalin, ideas are more powerful than weapons. We don't allow our enemies to have weapons, so why should we let them have ideas? This Marxism is the heart and soul of the cancel culture in our society. This is where it's coming from. And that's why it's not a Democrat-Republican thing of, of, of the old school. It's not left and right of the old school. It's the new left. It's the Marxist left. It's a foreign ideology that was not part of this country that has come from without and now is embedded and ensconced very infrastructure from within. Political truth and polyamory. Love is love, right? So we start up here with the movie Sister Wives. Maybe you've seen that series, Sister Wives, where 
the guy's kind of hip looking up on the top left and he's got four wives. I remember watching this one episode. Okay, I had to watch it. I have a Mormon background and, you know, my Mormon family says that I, I come from very healthy stock. My founder was one of Joseph Smith's bodyguards. You can read about it in the book in, in the back there. And he took five wives and had 36 children of which I'm a descendant. So healthy stock. At any rate, I'm in Utah and I, I watched this. I was going to Purdue at the time. I'm from Utah. I saw this episode where they invited this other family to join them on vacation to go to Las Vegas, this other polygamous family. And instantly I recognized two out of the three wives. I grew up with them three houses down and they were twin sisters. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even schedule a conference at your church or location, give him a call. That number in Hawaii is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the Air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharad. <laughs>